Well, good morning, everyone. I'm glad each one of you are here. And we're in, in Leviticus chapter 6, picking up with verse 14. Leviticus 6, picking up with verse 14. You know, uh, David Fritz sent me a little clip this week, and, uh, and I loved it. And it, it, it goes like this. No matter what the devil smokes, he'll never be the most high. <laughs> that was always his desire, huh? <clears throat> okay, let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you so much for your Holy Spirit and the way he's not only able to save our souls from damnation and uh, give us the assurance and the deposit of eternal life, but he's also able to guide us every step of the way. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would bring us to a place where we as your people would completely submit and surrender ourselves to your spirit of love, that we would no longer walk in the futility of our minds and in the ways of this world, but we would walk according to the spirit, according to your word. And so, Father, use us that we might be ministers of your word, of your truth, everywhere we go. And we give you thanks, Lord. And I pray, Father, that you would use me to minister to these, your precious people. And now come by your Holy Spirit, Lord, and speak, I pray in Jesus, Yeshua's name. Amen and amen. You know, it's interesting. A lot of times people say, why do we spend time going through the Old Testament? We're believers. We're Christians. Why don't we just stay in the New Testament? But we have to understand that the Old Testament is all about the promise of the coming Messiah and what he would do. And the New Testament is about the fulfillment of all the promises that were made in the Old Testament. And if you don't really understand the Old Testament, it's very difficult to understand many of the things that Jesus did in the New Testament. Last night, Vi and I were watching this um, video on YouTube about um, the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament. And it was a Messianic believer, a pastor, who was sharing. And he was talking about uh, the fact that it tells us on the last and greatest day of the feast, which, of course, was the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's when the pouring of the water was taking place for the removal of sin. That Jesus, you know, actually came in to Jerusalem and into the temple area. And it was at that time, remember, Jesus is, his, you know, he is the water of life. Anyone who drinks of that water will never thirst again. And also that water is able to cleanse us from all sin. And it was on that time that Jesus came into the temple that the Pharisees and teachers of the law brought a woman caught in the very act of adultery and threw her down before Jesus. And, you know, what are we supposed to do? Well, the law said she was supposed to be stoned to death. Then it tells us Jesus stooped down and started writing in the sand. And, of course, we've probably heard many teachings about what Jesus was writing, like the names of the Pharisees, girlfriends, and stuff like that. But this guy brought out the point, and it just shows how important the study of the Old Testament is. And in Jeremiah, it talks about the fact that he, and Jesus, of course, is God, would write the names of the unrighteous in the sand. So when he knelt down and started writing in the sands, they knew he was referring to that portion of Jeremiah, and they left. And Jesus, Jesus, Jesus of course, said to the woman, where are your accusers? And she said, there are none, sir. And he said, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. And that is the very purpose of the coming of the Messiah, that no matter what sin we have found ourselves caught in, he doesn't desire to accuse us, but to forgive us. 
He doesn't desire to put labels on us, but to cleanse us and to purify us. And that's why it's so important to understand the Old Testament. So when we study portions like Leviticus, it might seem so boring. There's so much in there. Now, as we're studying Leviticus, we realize that chapter 5 dealt mainly with man's trespasses against God. If you go back and look that over, you'll see that all those offerings that were made were man's trespasses against God. But chapter 6 deals mainly with man's trespasses against his fellow man. Because a right relationship with God must result in a right relationship with our fellow man. And it's interesting, if you think about it, we have Ten Commandments that Moses received from God in Mount Sinai. And four of the commandments are in relationship to God's communion with God. I mean, man's communion with God. I'm sorry, man's communion with God. But six of the Ten Commandments is man's relationship with his fellow man. And so we have to understand, as it tells us in 1 John 4, 20 through 21, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God, listen, must love his brother also. Must. If you love God, you must love your brother also. And that's very convicting, I think, for all of us. And for me. Maybe even especially for me. Because there are times that you run into people or you have relationships with people and you really don't like that person. I mean, that person just puts you up a wall. And maybe even in your heart you're hoping the worst for them. But that's not according to God's way and according to God's will. God's will is that we have to love them. And as believers, we should ask, and this, this is a difficult thing for all of us, to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to so fill us that we desire to love even our enemies and to do good to those who spitefully use us for one reason, to do God's will and purpose that they might be saved. Very convicting, isn't it? It's convicting to me personally. <clears throat> now, I believe that uh, the twofold meaning of what we're going to be uh, reading here in this portion, uh, you know, as far as uh, the commandments and as far as what we're reading is uh, God's, you know, giving the command that we're supposed to love our fellow man, it has a twofold meaning in the fact that the priest had a responsibility as well towards his fellow man. Because one of the things that's different is the first six verses of um, this particular chapter specifically deal with the average guy's sin against the average guy. But in this portion, it's dealing with the priest, that he's also to offer up this offering because it's so important for the priest to have a right responsibility with those he's ministering to. And so he needed to offer the sacrifice as well. Now, one of the things that we realize is that we have to make the correlation between what we're reading in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We no longer have in the New Covenant a priesthood because a priest is someone who is a mediator between God and man. In the Old Priesthood, you brought your offerings to the priest and the priest made atonement for you to God. 
He was mediator between you and God. But in the new covenant, there's only but one mediator between man and God, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. He's our only mediator. So what is the responsibility of a pastor then? Because we're going to be finding in Scripture that pastors are call of the Lord for the responsibility that they share with the people. But it's different than a priest because my responsibility isn't to bridge the gap between you and God. That's already been bridged by Jesus Christ. My responsibility is simply to teach. A pastor is probably more in line with the office of a prophet because when we think of prophets, oftentimes we have a wrong attitude. We think a prophet is saying, "Mm, next week you're going to come into a million dollars because you're going to win the lottery. You know, we think of a prophet as that. That's not the definition of a prophet. A prophet, the very definition, is one who brings the word of God to man. And that's the pastor's responsibility, to bring the word of God to the people. But Jesus is your mediator. But hopefully the pastor is bringing information that helps you have a better relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now... This, of course, uh, as I mentioned, has some relationship to the church in the sense we're going to be finding that there are certain responsibilities that were given to the sons of Aaron, responsibilities in ministering to the people. And in the same hand, God has given some to be apostles, some to be evangelists, some to be prophets, some to be pastor-teachers. In the Greek, pastor-teacher is a hyphenated word. A pastor is the teacher, the teacher of the word. And... So there is that calling that still comes from from God, but it's not to any particular family group. Like these were all the sons of Aaron. It's whomever the Lord calls to the ministry. Now, the thing we have to understand that uh, a pastor is not, at least hopefully, is not following a dream. He's not completing a major in college in ministry. And he's not following in his father's footsteps, although some do. Um, Or even talked into ministry by some evangelist. You know, sometimes we think that's what it means to be a pastor. No, a pastor has to be called of the Lord. If you have not had a calling from the Lord, you have no business in the pastoral ministry. Now, it's interesting because Scripture tells us who the Lord calls. He doesn't call you know, the most brilliant and the most successful and the most cool. He, it tells us that he calls those that are just kind of, ah, you know, normal. I'm putting that in my own words. But that's what he does. Because the Lord doesn't look down and say, well, look. Look at that person. Look at that guy. He's tall, dark, and handsome. He has the vocabulary of Webster. And uh, he's, you know, has the spiritual understanding of Spurgeon. Look at this guy. He's someone we're going to lift up. No, no. The Lord looks down and he sees all of us guys that are going, and he's, you know what, I'm going to use him. You know why? Because the Lord never wants the focus to be on the preacher, but he wants the focus to be on what the preacher is sharing on the Word of God. And that's one of the reasons that my personal conviction is that I'm not standing up here with robes on and collars and all kinds of things like that and sashes because I don't want you looking at me. I want you looking at the Lord. There's no longer a priesthood. Do you know who the priests are today? 
You are, a, I'm quoting scripture, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God to declare the praises of him who call, called you out of darkness into light. You're the priest of God. We're a royal priesthood. We stand the gap now between, you know, God and unsaved men and women in order to share the truth with them. So now, in picking up in Leviticus chapter 6, verse 14, this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron, so these were the priests of God, the sons of Aaron shall offer it on the altar before the Lord. He shall take from it his handful of fine flour of the grain offering uh, with its oil and all its frankincense, uh, which is on the grain offering, and that and uh, shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma as a memorial to the Lord. And the remainder of it Aaron and his sons shall eat with unleavened bread. It shall be eaten in a holy place. And then it tells us where that is. In the court of the tabernacle of meeting, they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my offerings made by fire. It is most holy, like the sin offering and the trespass offering. All the males among the children of Aaron may eat it. It shall, not, it shall be a statute forever in your generations concerning the offerings made by fire to the Lord. Everyone who touches them must be holy. Now, this offering could only be offered by the priest. And also this offering was only to be consumed by the priests, those responsible for ministry to the people. Now, it's interesting if we correlate that to the calling of a pastor today. In James chapter 3, verse 1, it says, My brethren, let not many uh, of you who become teachers, knowing that... Let me read that again. Brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive stricter judgment. So the reality is that now relating that to the ministry today, not many should be, you know, just assume the position of teacher because you're going to be held to a stricter responsibility. And that's why, as a pastor, uh, we're supposed to study to show ourselves approved, to work when correctly handling the word of truth. I should never stand up here just kind of like, duh, winging it. You don't wing the word of God. You know what I'm saying? That's why it's important for a pastor to study, not to show how brilliant and wonderful he is, but to study in order to get the most out of the portion of Scripture to give to the flock that he's feeding. Because the flock belongs to Jesus, not to him. Now, <clears throat> it seems this offering that we're talking about here is both a sin offering of those areas where the priests are lacking, in other words, in his relationship to his fellow man. And it's, it's so funny because God intended for the priesthood of Aaron to be the most humble of men, where they just were humbled before all the other people, all the other children of Israel, but instead they ended up lifting themselves up in pride. And when the priest would walk down the street, he would take his robes and pull them around himself closely, lest he touch a common man. And that was never meant to be the role of the priest. He was supposed to be openly sharing, you know, the manna of God, the true manna that came down from heaven is what we share, Jesus Christ, 
to our fellow man. Now, <clears throat> a handful of flour was very symbolic of the priest's responsibility to the people. But the remainder of that flour, it tells us, was to be the priest's comp- compensation. And uh, now it's interesting because the amount of flour, this handful of flour, was the least amount that could be offered, even by the poorest of people. And it was also accompanied usually with a log of oil, which is a pint of oil, and mixed in with the flour to be burnt on the altar for God. But that was considered the least amount. And I think, you know, that we need to realize that God has called us, even if all we have is a handful of flour to offer, to offer that to him and and to just offer up, you know, our offering saying, Jesus, forgive me a sinner. Jesus, show me the areas where I'm lacking, especially in my relationship to my fellow man. Show me where I might have wrong attitudes. Show me where I might have... Uh, just judgmental feelings and, and, and help me, Lord. I want to be forgiven. I want to be pure before you. Now, um, when we're told that it, it was a sweet aroma to God, it means it pleased God. It pleased Him. Think about this. If your children came up to you and said, you know what, Mom and Dad? I just thank you so much for all you've given me, and I'm so sorry for those areas that I've been lacking, so areas that I haven't fulfilled what you've called me to do. And, and just forgive me. And, and I just picked this handful of daisies in the field to just kind of give to you to tell, show you how much I love you. How would you feel as a parent? <laughs> You'd feel great. Well, that's what God's asking us to do, to go to him and say, Father, I thank you so much for your love. I thank you so much for your forgiveness. And I thank you so much that even this little handful of flour you're receiving is a gift from me, pleasing to you, is a sweet-smelling aroma. That's the God we serve. It's the same relationship we have with our children and we should have, you know, with one another. Because one of the things that I think about is I thank God every day for his calling to the ministry. And the blessing it is to tend his sheep. Because unless you're called into the ministry, you, don't under, you, you just can't understand the blessing of ministering to people. You know, when I first um, completed my uh, undergraduate and graduate work, going into the ministry was the last thing on my mind. I had a direction for my life. And I was heading strongly in that direction. You know, as a very young age, I was an administrator of a school. And that's the direction I was heading. Then the Lord reminded me of a promise I made when I was 10 years old. And he called me back from that direction into the ministry. And I've been in the ministry now for 40, I don't know how many years. Do you know if I? A long time. I, I've been in the ministry a long time. And every day is a blessing. And I thank God for you because you're the ones the Lord has called me to minister to. And hopefully I'm ministering from my heart, but I'm ministering the word of truth. 
And that's one of the reasons when you come to this church, you're not going to hear a whole series on marriage. You're not going to hear a whole series on children. You're not going to hear a whole series on dating. You're not going to hear a whole series on this and a whole series on that and a, and a whole series on who's going to win you know, the Super Bowl. You're not going to hear any of that stuff. When you come here, you're going to go through the Word of God. You're going to go right through the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. That's what Jesus commanded the pastor to do. Now, it's interesting, too, because um, Aaron and his sons were to eat, but it was to be eaten with unleavened bread in a holy place. And, of course, what that refers to, as far as you and I are concerned, unleavened, or leaven was, was sin. And so we're supposed to eat this bread with unleavened flour, in other words, without sin. And the only way you and I can eat of the word of God without sin is through confession and repentance, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the reality is that we can go to Jesus and say, Lord, forgive me a sinner, and he does. And we've been made pure, not by any effort of our own, not because of our own intrinsic nature, we're made clean by the blood of the Lamb. We're forgiven. And now we can open up the bread of life and we can participate in this bread in holiness and righteousness because of what He has done. And we're so thankful for that. And um, it was to be given to Aaron and his sons. All the males of Aaron's family could eat of it. Now, one of the things that's interesting, when you come across portions like this, people will ask, well, why does the Lord sometimes seem to discriminate between men and women? He doesn't discriminate between men and women. He has different responsibilities for men and women. Everything is in order. Jesus created everything in a perfect order. Like all the planets and you know, in, in stars and suns in our vast universe, they're all in perfect order. If they weren't, everything would come apart. You know, it's just like our sun. Do you know that we can measure the mass that the sun loses every year because it's a, it's a burning gas ball. It's losing mass. And if the sun were any closer to the earth, not much, but a little bit closer to the earth, we'd, the whole earth would burn up. If it was a little bit further from the earth, we'd have an ice age. So God had to put that sun in the right spot that the mass of the sun as it was being burned away would still give the earth everything it needed until all was completed in Scripture. Now, see, men love to say, well, the earth is billions and billions of years old. Where the Bible says, no, the earth is going to be about 7,000 years old. And so the reality is that if the earth were even a hundred million years old, the sun would be so close that the earth would be burnt to a cinder in seconds. So how do you lose that mass every year that can be measurable and you believe that the earth is millions and millions and millions and millions and billions of years old because the sun is expanding all that time because of the mass that we can measure that's lost? You follow my point? That's just one simple little thing. The moon going around the earth is like a gyroscope. It holds the earth in perfect orbit. You guys know what a gyroscope is. Remember the kids had those little things for a few years ago, the spinners? You spin them around and then touch your face and it hurt and put it in your hair and it tangle up. This was not 
Not what I did. That's what little kids did. But you guys know, you remember the gyroscopes? You put a string around it, and you pull it, and you can hold it in your finger. It holds it in perfect balance. Well, the moon is what holds the earth in perfect balance in its orbit around the sun. Everything is in perfect order. So when we read in Scripture, and there are different responsibilities for men and women, it's not that God upholds one higher than, than the other or is shown any kind of discrimination. He's just saying, this is our responsibilities. And the reality is that the responsibility for ministry was given to men. Because I think it's interesting, it doesn't say, women are not allowed to eat of this bread. It says, the males of Aaron's family are to eat of this bread. That's all. In other words, it's not saying anything negative about women. It's just talking about the calling of Aaron's sons. It's talking about the men. And the reality that only men were called to be priests, that's why only the males could eat it in the holy place. Women weren't allowed into that holy place at that time. And in the same way, in the pastoral ministry... Only men, actually, if you're really being clear with Scripture, only married men are called to be pastors. Let me read some verses. In fact, you can write these down or look them up. These are good verses. 1 Timothy 3.2. A bishop, we're going to find as we go through this, a bishop and a ruling elder are the pastors, the teachers of the church. We use the term bishop today, and we think of some kind of a clerical hierarchy. That's nowhere found in Scripture. The bishop is the preaching pastor. He's the, the one who is uh, the senior pastor of the church. And the ruling elder, those are the ones that preach the word of God. A bishop then must be. How do you take that term must be? I take it as it must be. Must be blameless. The husband... Of one wife. In other words, he wasn't supposed to be a polygamist. He wasn't supposed to have two, three wives. Titus 1, 5 through 8. And appoint elders in every city as I commanded. If a man is blameless, listen to this, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop, see how it changes it from elder to bishop right here? It's talking about ruling elder and bishop. They're the same thing. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. See, in this portion, it tells us the bishop or the ruling elder, the pastor, is to not be given to wine, any. Where when it talks about deacons and other elders, it says they're not to be given to much wine. In other words, uh, it's okay to have a drink, but don't get drunk. If you get drunk, you know, you're out of God's will. In 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 13, well, just verse 12. And this is what it says. I do not permit women to teach or to have authority over men, but to be in silence. Now, that's not talking about in the home or in the workplace. or anything. It's talking in the church because it says not many of you who... You should be called, you know, should just take on that responsibility of being a teacher because you're held more responsible. So it's talking about the teaching elder. It's talking about the bishop of the church. And um, this makes it very clear that women are not permitted into that position. Now, one of the things that's interesting, though, is that you have King Solomon. Now, King Solomon was an interesting guy, 
and he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Just think about that. That is weird. And yet, King Solomon, in Proverbs 31, probably wrote one of the most beautiful um, poems about women that you can ever imagine. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. You have a whole chapter written about the beauty of a good woman. And there's nowhere in the Bible that you have a whole chapter written about the beauty of a good man. It's just something to think about. For instance, I'm going going to read a few verses from Proverbs chapter 31, starting with verse 10. Who Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. And the heart of her husband safely trusts her. And going down to verse 12, she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Going down to verse 17, she girds herself with strength and uh, strengthens her arms. And uh, verse 18, her lamp does not go out at night. Verse 20, she uh, extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out to the hands of the needy. Down to verse 25, strength and honor are her clothing. Verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. So in other words, she has good things to share. Verse 27, she watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up, and they call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Charm, and I love this part, charm is deceitful and beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of the hand and let her own works praise her in the gates. Well, that's beautiful. And it talks about the worth of a woman. So anyone who says, well, the Bible is very discriminatory. No, it's not. It just has a certain order set up. For whatever reason, God chose for men to be the pastors, to be the teachers of the church. But it also makes it clear he has work for women to do as well. Women ministered to other women in the Old Testament, and women ministered to women in the New Testament. In fact, in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, it makes it clear that it encourages women to minister to women, and also in that same chapter for men to minister to men. And I think that's important because when you want to be ministered to, you don't want to be distracted by anything. And I think sometimes it's much easier for a woman to be... And I think that's one of the reasons, I'm kind of digressing a little bit, one of the reasons why it says a pastor shall be the husband of one wife. And it also gives the requirements for the for the for the deacon's wife and for the pastor's wife. It gives requirements for them, and I think it's because they have a responsibility, a great responsibility in ministering to other women. And um, in fact, in uh, 1 Timothy 3, 10 and 11, it says, But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives, their wives must be reverent, not slanderous, temperate, and faithful in all things. So we have to understand that God has a purpose for both men and women in the church. Because there are ways that you ladies can minister to other ladies that I can't. 
And there are ways that I can minister to men that you ladies can't. Because of the fact that there would always be that little distraction there. And so that's the reason God has... Now, here's the thing. You have a spiritual question, I'm your pastor. You can come and ask me any question you want and talk to me about anything you want. You've got maybe some little personal problems. Ladies, that's when you talk to the pastor's wife. You know, Vi or Nikki or any of the elder's wives or, or any mature woman in the church for that matter. They're the ones, <clears throat> you know, you go and talk with. And then in verse, chapter 6, verse 19 through 23, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This is the offering of Aaron and his sons, which they shall offer to the Lord, beginning on the day when he is anointed, in other words, anointed as a priest, one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a daily grain offering, half of it in the morning and half of it at night. <clears throat> in other words, the responsibility is all day for the priest. It shall be made in a pan with oil when it is mixed. You shall bring it in. Uh, the baked pieces of the grain offering you shall offer for a sweet aroma to the Lord. The priest from among his sons who is anointed uh, in his place shall offer it. It is a statute forever to the Lord. It shall be wholly burned. For every grain offering for the priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. So if we were comparing this to the church today, I believe it would relate to the pastor in the sense of his responsibility to have real communion with the Lord. Because we have to realize, and I certainly do, I have nothing to offer to you what I have not first received from the Lord myself. You follow what I'm saying? I have to be before the Lord in the Word, in prayer, and seeking his face in order to have anything to share with you. I can't offer to you what I don't already what I haven't received. And therefore the congregation hopefully recognizes that what the pastors are sharing are not their divine wisdom. They're simply sharing what they've received to the Lord. It comes from God through the pastor to you and for you back up to the Lord. You see what I'm saying? There's that beautiful circle of of relationship that is there. You know, I, I go before the Lord and I pray and I spend time in the Word and the Lord speaks to me what He wants me to share with you. And I share that with you and hopefully inspires you and encourages you that you take it back up to the Lord again, you know, in prayer and also in, this, in, the, in the sense that it might change your lives to behave in certain ways. Because one of the things that we have to realize is that while we are on this terrestrial ball, while we walk this earth, we have a responsibility to all those around us, to our fellow man. And one of the greatest distractions that we can have in ministering to other people is to have attitudes. It's so easy for us to have attitudes, isn't it? Well, do you know what they did? Do you know how they are? Do you know what they are like? Do you remember? And we shouldn't have that attitude. It's very convicting to me personally, too. <laughs> you, know, you know the old saying, when someone points a finger at you, they have three pointing back at themselves. And uh, we have to get beyond a place where we have attitudes towards people to a place where all we have is God's love to pour out to people. You follow what I'm saying? Because here's the thing. All we desire, all we should desire, 
would be for people to be saved. And I might have shared this with you before, but this is a perfect example to use here. Um, when we go to Israel, our, 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 and be praying about it. I just have had this kind of urging again. But when we go to Israel, we haven't been for a long time. We have a guide, and his name is Amir Sarfati. And uh, he and Frank really clicked the last time we went. And uh, he's a lieutenant colonel in the IDF, Israeli Defense Force. If you're in the, you know, everyone has to go in the army in Israel, men and women. As soon as they graduate from high school, you go in the army. Women go for two years, men go for three years. Men are in the reserves until they're 57 years old, unless they're an officer, then they're in the reserves until they're 72. <laughs> I'd be out for a couple of years anyway. And, um, but anyway, Amir is, is to be a, a guide in Israel is very prestigious. It's a very prestigious position. I mean, they have a lot of college and, and training they have to go through in order to have that position. But anyway, when Amir was 17 years old, he, he got saved. Amir was in a foster home, which is very unusual for, for Jews, because, you know, you, you, the whole thing about the Jewish family, that's true. So it's very unusual, but Amir grew up in foster homes. And when he was, in 17, uh, when he was 17, he was in this foster home, and uh, there, there were you know, several boys that were in it. And one of the guys took him to, I think it was a Youth for Christ movie, and he got saved. Here, here he is, this Jewish boy, third generation, born in Jerusalem, and he got saved. He was born again. And so he came back to the house, and, and, and he just prayed, and he said, God, he said, just allow one of my foster brothers to get saved so we can have some fellowship together, but don't let it be, and he named this other guy, and they hated each other so much, they literally had fistfights every day. That's how much they hated each other. They had fistfights every day. And he said, Lord, please don't let it be him. Anyone else, just have one of my other foster brothers get saved. Guess who got saved? <laughs> the one he had the fistfight with every day. And they're such they became such close friends, like brothers, like real brothers, that to this day, they talk every single day on the phone with one another, to this day. So there's a situation where the very person that Amir had an attitude over became a real brother in the Lord and in other ways as well. You follow what I'm saying? So we have to have this open heart before God and to not allow ourselves to be judgmental. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name and we thank you for this portion of Scripture and, and how we are so encouraged to... Um, just love our fellow man and to not be judgmental to not have attitudes but to truly desire for them to know you and so father i pray that you would forgive us our sin and transgression in this area and just come by your holy spirit and fill us with your love a love that can be shared and give us wisdom lord in knowing how to be your servants to be your ministers in this life i pray in jesus yeshua's name amen and amen god bless you my friends